you know, I, I actually, whatever they played and they were, they were really tolerant. I mean, a lot of, a lot of my friends, their parents, you know, anytime they would try to play any kind of rock music, um, you'd get that typical response, especially from the father figure of turn off that noise. My parents weren't really like that. They, you know, they, especially my mom, she wanted to hear what I was listening to from a, you know, cause she, she listened to new stuff, you know, she found new stuff. From and I had two sisters, so they were also buying all kinds of rock records that you know we'd bring home, and and they really got a kick out of. It. They didn't want to be that parent who was kind of a stiff, you know, considered a square. They they both really were trying to keep up with. everyone and welcome to a new episode of set lusting bruce your podcast all about bruce springsteen his music and mostly his fans i am your host jesse jackson uh we are we have a fellow podcaster joining me but we are not getting off the podcast the springsteen train uh phil gibbons is a springsteen fan and a podcaster so two great tastes that go good together he is like peanut butter and chocolate welcome to the podcast my friend well it's my pleasure and I'm, I'm really glad to be here and i'm really excited to tell my story which i think um all of your listeners will find to be both um unique and also fascinating and something they actually have probably heard about and even heard but um have probably never heard it from somebody who actually witnessed it in a remarkable way. Ooh, that is a great tease. Uh, you can tell you're a professional. Uh, before <laughs> we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us your elevator pitch. Well, I'm, I'm, I have to say it. I'm from the New York area. I grew up on Long Island, New York, and uh, I, I went to uh, a Northeastern uh, liberal arts college. I got out of college in the late 70s. I was corporate for about 15 years, and then around 2000, I decided that I was going to uh, teach for a while in the Long, uh, Los Angeles Unified School District. And while I was doing that, I made it a documentary film, and I wrote all sorts of journalism, and I explored a lot of, did a lot of traveling and travel writing, et cetera. And that, that kind of evolved into what I'm doing today, uh, a podcast about history biography. But uh, in terms of music that, that I grew up with, my father was very much popular. He loved stuff like Chubby Checker, The Monkey, and uh, The Girl from Ipanema. And my mom was way into, uh, she was an artist, so she hung around in Greenwich Village a lot. So she actually saw Bob Dylan when he was, you know, pretty early in his career, bought all of his albums, a lot of other Greenwich Village, like Tom Paxton, uh, various other, Phil Oaks, various other folk people. And I... I also, like a lot of your guests from this era, I, I certainly, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, but... I also loved rock and roll, like top 40 rock and roll, British Invasion. So I listened to WABC 77. I knew that top 40 every week. I know what song was, what number, where it was on the super hit survey and stuff. And Cousin Brucie and Dan Ingram. And, and that was the era I grew up in. I think another another big leap for me was um, when I <laughs> when I bought an FM radio. And then uh, I was listening, you know, I was listening, of course, to AM radio, as were most people. And then FM radio really changed rock into more album rock. And at that point, I got into my kind of teenage juvenile delinquent heavy metal phase, Deep Purple and The Who and Led Zeppelin and a little bit of David Bowie. I got into him much later, you know, in a much bigger way. And that was 
then I, in college, I think my two favorite bands were Bowie and uh, Steely Dan. And I was aware of Bruce Springsteen, and this is sort of a good segue to my story today. But well, let's, let's hang on. I want to I want to explore just a little bit. Sure. Um, so it. By the way, I was an AM radio kid. I graduated high school in '77. You know, FM radio was where the druggies listened to, right? I was like, I was that FM music. You don't know it. You can't sing with it, right? And and no. I remember one of my friends telling me that's the point, Jesse. And I was like, no, the whole <laughs> point of a radio is you get to sing along. Um, well, yeah, go ahead, please. There's there's a big difference between say you know last train to Clarksville and Knights in White Satin you know yes. and maybe where you're gonna under what circumstances you're gonna hear those two songs yeah so I totally agree with you it was very and and I very much still love because everywhere you went in New York you would always hear until the early '80s when they went off the air you, you'd always hear top forty radio so it never really went away it's just not really what I listen so you parents two different worlds did you enjoy both did you re did you rebel against either side when you were finding your own uh, listening habits? You know, I, I actually, whatever they played and they were, they were really tolerant. I mean, a lot of, a lot of my friends, their parents, you know, anytime they would try to play any kind of rock music, um, you'd get that typical response, especially from the father figure of turn off that noise. My parents weren't really like that. They, you know, they, especially my mom, she wanted to hear what I was listening to from a, you know, cause she, she listened to new stuff, you know, she found new stuff from, and I had two sisters. So they were also buying all kinds of rock records that, you know, we'd bring home and, and they really got a kick out of it. They didn't want to be that parent who was kind of a stiff, you know, considered a square. They, they both really were trying to keep up with. All right. So you were mentioning that you can remember the first time you heard Bruce. So Tell me that story and and tell me what about his music spoke to you. If it did, well, did it make an impression on you? Well, the 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 way the way that I first got exposed to him was again in college, where I think you you know your experience might be similar in that anybody who lived on a hallway in a college dorm was exposed to all the people who lived there. So at least Anywhere you went, there'd be somebody who owned his first two albums, you know, Welcome to Asbury Park and The Wild, The Innocent and The East Street Shuffle. And you hear it and I'd hear the music on the radio and I liked it, you know, it, but it didn't. I never saw him live. We'll discuss a little bit about what that's like and how that changes your perception of him. And then I was in college when Born to Run came out and the whole furor over it was on Newsweek and Time on the same week. And I bought that album and I loved the album. But again, it was just another album that I would listen to and I liked it. But I'm not like many, you know, I wasn't then like many fans who had a, a particular, like a real almost mania about Bruce Springsteen because I had never seen him live yet. And, yeah, you it, know, how that, yeah, go ahead. No, the album wasn't a Road to Damascus moment for you. For example, when I graduated high school in 77, I went to a Montgomery Wards, bought Endless Summer 8-track and plugged it into my 8-track player. And I, music was never the same hearing the Beach Boys for the first time, really hearing them. You know, I may have heard a thing or two there, but hearing them, I went, oh my goodness, I didn't know music could be this way. Um, so, you know, that's a road to Damascus moment. You know, hearing Born to Run, as you're saying, it was interesting to you, but it was just, oh, this is another good album, like something from, you know, Led Zeppelin or Dylan or... 
you know, Grand Funk Railroad or whoever you want to mention, right? Exactly. And, and, uh, and even, even, uh, I, I basically, I got, I graduated and I was supposed to, uh, I was supposed to, I wasn't going to go to graduate school. I'd had an, actually an interesting job in between my junior and senior in an oil tank that went from Los Angeles to Hawaii and back and also was quite lucrative. So my plan, I didn't, I had no idea really what I wanted to do. And so I just figured, well, I'll go back. And my dad agreed, you know, because he was basically to make a long story short, he was able to get me this job. And he said, well, when you come home, you know, you can hang out for a few weeks and then you'll get back on the oil tanker. Well, as it turned out, it's a whole complicated story, but he couldn't get me the job again. So I, I came home and I'm in, it's June of 1978 and I'm, I'm sitting in my house. Now, by the way, that's when Darkness on the Edge of Town was released in June of 19. 19- and Los Angeles was always, I think because of the industry presence there, Los Angeles was always a big Bruce Springsteen. You know, some towns take to him. And he was always big in Los Angeles. You know, he's big in New York, but he's from Jersey. Right. But L.A. almost as big. And so that got a lot. Darkness on the Edge of Town got huge airplay in L.A. And I went out right away and I bought that album. And, you know, I was playing that album at home. And, and But still, again, like even Prove It All Night, which I'll talk about a little bit later it was it's that was a, that was the first song that i heard from him the studio version i said whoa this is this is i really like this song you know one of those where i'd play it 10 times in a row and still want to hear it again mm-hmm. you know, it was and and so you know and then the album in la was a big deal and there was a radio station kmet which is kind of the at that particular moment in time just like wabc 77 in new york that was the biggest fm radio station probably in the country and they were they were big Springsteen fans. and Springsteen was on tour and he was and he was playing a a it was going to be it was July fifth nineteen seventy eight well I, I I was too late like they sold out the L A Forum for Bruce Springsteen months before I even got to L A and by the way I'm living with my parents so so he's front page news in L A the first week of July and I'm you know I'm I'm excited to get he's in town and listen to his music well. My parents are going to work every day. I don't have a job. And so I'm, I'm listening on the morning of Thursday, July 6th to KMET radio. And they announced that Bruce Springsteen is going to perform a special concert at the Roxy Theater, which is a nightclub on Sunset Boulevard. And, uh, you know, a famous nightclub, but not a venue you'd expect Bruce Springsteen to be playing at that point. He, you know, his, his show at the forum was reviewed on the front page. He was a big deal, et cetera. So it was this special show. And they said, tickets will go on sale at noon. Well, I'm just sort of sitting there in my underwear, you know, lounging around on the couch, no job, reading the paper. And I'm like, well, I only lived five minutes away from the Roxy. So I figured I'll go down and check it out. And of course, when I get there, there actually, there've been people who had heard rumors of the concert the night before at the Bruce show at the forum. And they left from the forum to go directly to the Roxy theater to get online. Like, it, you know, 12 midnight the night before. So by the time I got there, there easily were seven, 800 people, you know, wow. waiting at the box office. And, and the, the, the theater only held 500 people. So I'm thinking probably not going to happen. And, but it was a huge scene. There were helicopters overhead and, you know, the typical LA scene, especially for news, for a news store, there are all these sound trucks. And at 12 o'clock, sure enough, the, the box office opens and the line starts to move forward a little bit. And then literally like 10 minutes later, it just stops. And all these people who had been online just kind of started to dissipate. And, and I walked forward to figure out what was going on. 
Well, you get to the front of the line, and there's people like shouting and hitting the because basically what happened was they might have sold maybe 50 tickets and then they just shut the they shut the box office and said, that's it, we're sold out. Well, in LA, between both ticket scalpers and also the industry, like the immediate reaction of everybody there was, hey, this is this is you know, this ain't right. We're the fans, they didn't sell enough tickets, somebody's holding tickets back, and people were getting really angry. Well, the KMET had a news guy there. His name was Paraquat Kelly. He was the guy who would do their news on air stuff. And he got up on a van and he got a bullhorn. He said, hey, ladies and gentlemen, I know you're disappointed, blah, blah, blah. But I want you to know that the Bruce Springsteen Roxy concert is going to be broadcast live on KMET on Friday at 730. Well, instead of this, you know, great applause and all, people started to boo and they started to yell at him and saying, you know, we want to be there, et cetera, et cetera. And I heard then people started to say records. Well, I had applied, I at least had applied for some jobs at various entertainment industry companies. And one of them was at Columbia Records. And I knew they were on like the eighth floor of a skyscraper. And you, were, you weren't going to get anywhere near the Columbia Record off. But then I realized too that KMET, which was had a very like a, you know, they were hip and they, they tried to engage with their audience and they wanted to, you know, they wanted to have basically an identity and they didn't want to seem standoffish. I said, I'm going to go to KMET and complain to them because this is, you know, really, I didn't even really care that much at that point, whether it was Springsteen or anybody else. It was the idea that it was going to be this kind of private party show that it was just irritating. So I noticed that Phil and I's discussion kept breaking up. So at this point in the conversation, turned off camera from now on the sound but this is why he's part of the story, because I asked him. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Okay, and also, by the way, is this too long or too much detail? No, no, you were doing this, great. This... You were doing great. No, you're okay. doing fine. Okay, so so I'm sitting around, you know, my parents' house. They're getting up and going to work each day, and I'm listening to KMET and the, and the Bruce Springsteen concert had been the night before at the Forum. You know, this triumphant thing that it was written up on the front page of the LA Times with a rave review, and KMET is talking about it, and then they announced that basically they're going to sell tickets 
where tickets are going on sale at the Roxy Theater, which is a theater that only holds about 500 people on the, on Sunset Boulevard for a special show on Friday night. And it's this is Thursday morning. So I'm only 10 minutes from the Roxy. I'm you know, just sitting around in my underwear in, the, in my living room. And I'm like, well, hell, I'll jump, you know, got dressed quickly, jumped in the car. Well, by the time I got over to the Roxy, easily there were six, seven, eight hundred people there. And I got online and, you know, people were hopeful and anxious. And but I, I wasn't very I figured at that point, there's no way I'm going to get a ticket, but we'll see what happens. So at 12 noon, basically, the, the line starts moving forward for a few minutes. And then all of a sudden, at like 10 after 12, it stops moving. And all the people up by the, the box office itself start to kind of mill around in the street. And I walk up there and it's clear there are people who are angry and they're banging on the on the window that was now shut of the box office because they only sold maybe 50 tickets and then they shut down, didn't sell any more tickets. And everybody kind of, you know, in a place like LA where there's ticket scalpers and also it's a big industry town, people just felt, hey, they're holding back tickets from us, the real fans. And people were starting to get really angry. And I remember this guy by the name of Paraquat Kelly, Pat Kelly, who was a, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to pause you there. You just good? yeah, I, I just want to pause you one more thing. Um, okay. I I love this. Okay. I don't love that you had this experience, but I love the story because um, flashback this year or last year when tickets went on sale and the amount of wailing and gnashing the teeth of people like it's just not fair. We can't get tickets. This verified fan sucks. Ticketmaster sucks. Back in the day, at least when we spent all night there, you got a chance to get a ticket. And the reality is your story is telling there's always been people who can get tickets. There's always people who can't get tickets. And the fan always feels screwed. <laughs> I mean, just it, it well, is, you it, know. Yeah, go ahead. So continue your story. You may have a, find up a happy ending. But my first thought as they're listening that <laughs> oh, is, well. you know, this happens. So anyway, continue, my friend. Well, it happened. It, it happened to me, too, when I, you know, I lived in New York and bands would play like The Who and Madison yeah. Square Garden. And a lot of times those those shows would sell out in an hour, you know, and yeah. you just couldn't get if, unless you lived in Manhattan. There's no way you could get those tickets. It was just right. hard. Yeah. So in, in this case, in this case, too, even a lot of people were so angry. And by the way, this guy, Pat Kelly, got on a he got on a, a, a van in front of the Roxy and he made an announcement that, hey, we're going to. We're going to broadcast this show live on Friday, so you're not going to miss out on anything. Well, instead of uh, getting a big round of applause, everybody started booing mm -hmm. and audibly and saying, "Hey, we want to be there, and this is a ripoff, and you know, we don't. This is a private party, and that's not right, etc." So a lot of people were going to go down to Columbia Records and complain. And I had already gone to Columbia Records to apply for a job, and I knew that they were on like the seventh floor in Beverly Hills of someplace, you'd never get anywhere close to their office, especially to try to complain about something like this. But then I remembered that KMET that was really listener oriented, they were on the Sunset Strip. And I figured, you know, you could probably go down there, especially when they're trying to promote this thing as this great concert, go down there and complain, not so much even to get a, you know, I didn't even think about getting a ticket. I was more like, this is wrong. And, and somebody needs to know. Well, I get in my car, I go down to KMET and I walk in, to the receptionist and I said, hey, I was just down at the Roxy and you guys are broadcasting this concert, but I want to talk to somebody about, you know, they, they didn't sell any tickets, really. they're holding these tickets back. Well, the funny thing is the receptionist looks at me 
And she goes, well, you may, you may want to join those people over there. There were already like four other people at KMET who had the same experience I had. And so, and she said, uh, I think, I think the news director is going to come out and talk. And, and this guy who was the news director named, you know, to cut to the chase, his name was, I think it was Ace Young, came out and everybody started peppering him right away with this whole story. And they were getting uptight. And he was pretty cool. Like, of course, he was dressed in like a Hawaiian shirt and slacks and everything. He's a typical radio employee in those days. And he just looked at us and he said, well, I do it. I do a daily show around lunchtime. Why don't we put you guys live on the air as a news story? Wow. And everybody looked at each other and said, yeah. And everyone, everyone said, fine. He brings us into a conference room with all these microphones. And the funny thing was, he said, well, he, you know, he did a great intro and he kind of knew he had gotten an inkling of what had happened. And we went around the table and everybody not only told their story and how much they loved Bruce and, you know, but everybody was really articulate and spot on. Nobody sounded like a jerk. Nobody, nobody really was nasty about it. They were very, you know, they were, they were polite, but they were emphatic. And so, so that's like one o'clock on Thursday. We were live on the air. We get up to leave after that's over. And a guy who also came in, who I think actually was not the news director was with us, but we're walking out. And this guy who basically I think was like the, the radio station director came in and he said, look, you know, you guys, you got to understand this is a really tough ticket, you know, and, and, and we'll try our best if we can. OK, we'll try our best to try to get you guys some tickets. But, I, you know, we can't even get tickets for this show. But, you know, based on what you went through and based on you guys coming down here, we'll see what we can do for you. Wow. So, I'm, you know, I'm a New Yorker. So I don't you know, to me, it's like, hey, I'm getting shot. You know, it's like fine. And, you know, well, he wasn't mean or na- like in New York. If you tried to go to a radio station and started complaining to people, they probably kick, you know, they kick you down the stairs. You'd never get anywhere. You know, mm-hmm. so so I just appreciated the fact that they were really polite. And and I left and I didn't really think a whole lot of it until the next day and again by now the story is news everywhere and it's 10 11 it's like 12 noon i haven't heard anything but i'm thinking i even was i told my parents about it and they said my dad especially like hey they're not going to call you they don't have any tick you know you, you forget it you're not getting into the show so i don't hear anything and so i finally i said well you know what i'm just going to call them and just see you know what the deal is because they said they were going to try so i'll just at yeah, least have them sure. officially say no we couldn't get them so, so I pick up the phone, I call, you know, I get right through to KMET to, you know, their business line. And I talk to their same receptionist I saw the day before. And she just says, hold on a minute. And, and she patches me through to somebody there. I don't, it wasn't the, it wasn't the station director, but she patched me through to someone. I said, Hey, I'm so-and-so Phil Gibbons. You know, I, I came in yesterday, was on the air and uh, you know, there was something about maybe you guys might get us some tickets. And the guy just paused and he goes, nobody called you. And I said, no, you know, nobody called me. He goes, there's going to be two tickets for you at the box office. No way. And, I, and I'm like, really? Yeah. He goes, he goes, yeah, there are two tickets for you at the box office. I said, come on, really? He goes, no, absolutely. I've seen the list. I've seen the list of all the people from our station who are either going to be on the guest list to get in or people who have will call tickets. And you're definitely on the list. Well, I still didn't believe it. But at this point, at this point, I'm thinking, well, you know, I, you know I'm definitely going down there. You know, obviously. And the funny thing is, I didn't really know a single. I just graduated from college. I didn't know a single person in L.A. You know, there was not a single person I could. I'm not bringing my parents, you know. And so. Right. So. So I'm like, I I don't you know if this I don't know what I'm going to even do with the other ticket. So. So I drive down there in those days, you know, you could get down to the Sunset Strip and even park and all. 
And I think they said, yeah, we'll call will open up at four o'clock. Well, by now, by now it's like one thirty, two o'clock. And there was a restaurant across the street and the place already is bedlam because because everybody now it's it's between the people who are trying to scalp a ticket. The hangers, you know, it's just a, it's a happening. You know, it's a sure. scene. Again, all the news trucks are out there. Helicopters, you know, even mid-afternoon, I'm just sitting across the street sort of and enjoying an adult beverage. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I even got a shot. I mean, I'm supposedly I got a shot here. You know, we'll see what happens because you know how that is between the radio station and and the Roxy. You know, somebody may say, nah, the heck with that. They're nobody. Forget it. They're not getting, you know, whatever. You never sure. know what could happen. So four o'clock, sure enough, I could see that, you know, will call is open and I, you know, I pay my bill and I walk over there and, and uh, you know, there's will call. And by at, at four o'clock, it's not really total chaos. I mean, it's pretty right. easy to get to access will call. And uh, and so I go up and I say, hey, you know, apparently there's two tickets. I, actually, I didn't say that. I said two tickets. Yeah, I just said two. I didn't want to give anybody, you know, the idea that I wasn't I wasn't on a list or, you know, whatever. Right. So I just said, yes, yeah, sound two confident. Tickets. The name is Phil, Phil Gibbon. Yeah. So. So the guy does that whole thing where he's he's going through the alphabetical order. He's going through, he gets to the G's, he goes through. All of a sudden, he just reaches in, grabs out an envelope and hands it. And I'm, and I'm like taking the envelope and still I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's no way. This is crazy. This sure. couldn't possibly happen. So I, I walk and I didn't even, I just put the envelope in my pocket. I walked back to the restaurant across the street. And it wasn't because I, I didn't want to open these, uh, you know, in front of who knows, you know, I just thinking, yeah, sure. so I sit there, you know, again, order another adult. Be- I order another adult beverage. I open it up. And sure enough, there's two tickets. And on the front, it says and I, I email. I don't know if you got my uh, email. I but did. I, I the, saw your image. The, yes. The ticket stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so on the front, it just says generic Roxy Theater. And on the back, it says stamped with a rubber stamp. Bruce Springsteen, July 7th, 1978. Price five dollars, and uh, and at that point, you know, I just I just sat there and watched as this whole scene in front of the theater got crazier and crazier and crazier. Now that in and of itself is a is an interesting story, but what happened after this is, you know, I sat there for a few hours, and I think I think the concert officially, I think the official start time was seven thirty. Sure. So about seven, and and I was like so excited. And, and, you know, so jazzed that I just said, you know, I am not going to do one of these things where I got to be the first person in there. I'm just going to relax. I'm just going to walk in. I'll find a place to sit. And again, I, I wasn't even thinking about the other ticket, you know, and, and, and I will say right away, like I never had any one second thought of scalping the ticket, which by the way, there were already people when you, there were people, if you walked anywhere near the theater, there were people order, offering like $500 a ticket. Because they knew it was like a, a unique, you know, yeah. it was it's just a concert. You'd probably never see anything like this again. So, you know, and so, so, but I never. I want to ask ahead. you. Yep. I I would think it's bad karma to like like I would have, and I don't. I want to hear your thought process, but my thought process is, oh my goodness, I I have the heavens has opened up, and I have been given a gift, and to use that for financial you know, gain, man, the chances are something bad. Karma's going to come back and kick me my butt somehow. What was your thought? Well, first of all, exactly that. And when you mention the word karma, when I tell you what happened, like it will totally align with exactly what you said. Okay. Because even I got on the line, you know, 
I'm like the last person online. And people are even, there are people coming up and down. And I didn't even really want to say anything to anybody because then that's going to be somebody saying, you know, literally getting on their knees and holding fists. And I just didn't even want to deal with any of that. But I just knew I can't, there's no, I can't sell this ticket. I just can't do that. Because, because the whole thing we talked about on the radio was, you know, these dirtbag scalpers, this, and, you know, these selfish people that it's like, well, how am I going to, I can't scalp this ticket. Right. But again, I had no idea. I had no inclination as to what I was going to do with it. And so the line, I'm getting closer and closer to actually, you know, the concert's about to start. I'm one of the last people on the line who are walking in. Because again, I I didn't want to get involved in what actually sort of happened was this, because it was first come, first serve. You know, it was general admission. Yeah. So obviously there was going to be a huge, you know, fracas as far as where people were going to sit. Well, I'm getting closer and closer and closer to the actual entrance to the venue. And there were people, there was a group of like 30 people who hadn't given up. And they were, they were like, a lot of them were literally like really emotional, just going, please, anybody, please, we'll pay anything. We'll pay anything. And so what I, I kind of, I, at this point, I just, I just got the idea and I took the one ticket, I put it in my pocket and I took the other ticket and I kept it in my shirt pocket and I didn't even really look carefully. I just pretty much focused on the first person that got my attention. And it was a guy. And I just handed him the ticket. And I said, here. And, and the guy like looks at me and he looks he, and he looks at the ticket and he goes, is that a ticket? I said, yeah, it's a ticket. It sure is. But I didn't want to be anywhere near like, oh, thank you, man. You know, and, yeah. and guy hugging me and slobbering, you know, any of that. I just, and I also didn't want other people to come running up and thinking I had more tickets. Exactly. Like, oh, what, 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 you know, what, and, and I just, yeah. Yeah. And I just was like hit and run. I hand this guy the ticket. I go into, I go into the venue. Okay. And, and the Roxy, the funny thing is, I've never, I was, that was the only time I've ever been there. And I've lived in LA ever since then, but for whatever reason, I've only been there the one time. I didn't really know the layout of the venue. And I walked in and sure enough, you could see a partially open curtain. And in front of that curtain was like a melee of people. All obviously, you know, they're kind of elbow and they're all trying to figure out how they're going to sit right there. Mm-hmm. And I was momentarily kind of flummoxed by that. And I stood there and I was staying way in the back of the Roxy Theater. And all of a sudden I feel this tug in my elbow. And it was the guy that I gave the ticket to. Mm-hmm. And he goes, follow me, follow me, come with me. And I said, you know, like, I'm like, what? Yeah. Goes, no, no, no. Follow me, follow me. Don't, you know, hurry, hurry. And yeah. he grabs me and I'm like, okay, you know, I got nothing to lose here. Cause I'm not, cause I'm not going to, I'm going to wind up in the last seat in the last row. So yeah. he goes, he goes to literally the, the, the aisle on the side aisle. He goes running down. And the way that Roxy was set up was the tables were set up like lengthwise. They weren't, okay. they were set up so that if, if you were sitting down, you were looking across to the person across from you, as opposed to looking at the stage. Yeah. So they were set up in, in a By the way, yeah. right. Like that's how a lot of improv clubs are set up. Like the Dallas improv right. has that set up where you kind of have to turn to, you know, you, instead of like an auditorium face, you know, so you're kind of, you turn to the angle to see the stage, right? Right. Okay. Exactly. I got you. And so, so I don't, I don't even, you know, we run, there's chairs, by the way, again, because all this focus is on the area where the curtain is open. And I guess everyone's assumption was that, that, you, you know, that, that other curtain that's closed, that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. And, and I, you know, I'm following this guy, I sit down and I'm kind of like, you know, Hey, Hey man, well, you know, what are we doing here? We can't even see anything. 
And he just starts laughing. He goes, you've never been here before, have you? And I said, no. He goes, when the show starts, this curtain is going to open up and you're going to be in the front row, right in front no of way. You know, the band. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and it's the guy that I gave the ticket to, as I mentioned. And I just said, well, by the way, you know, my name is Phil. And he goes, Phil, like, you know, you're you're like my best friend I ever met. Because this guy was like a Springsteen, like fanatic. I mean, he would be that guy who was standing in front of the rocks. He's saying, I'll pay mm-hmm. you anything. He was like the ultimate Springsteen fanatic. And before I even said much of anything else, because here was another thing that I never I, I was remembering the other day was that in those days, in a club like this, you didn't like you couldn't really use a credit card. It was all cash. Right. So so I I kind of like I had, I think, some cash, but maybe no more than like twenty, thirty dollars. And in a club like that, by the way, the in those days, of course, the high rollers drank Heineken beer and that was the beer they basically served at the Roxy because it was expensive. And the guy points at me, he calls the waitress over and she, she didn't want any, you know, she, her whole section had nobody in it. So we were the only people in her section at that point, everybody else is still fighting over all the chairs in front of the open curtain area. Mm -hmm. And she, he just points at me and, and he says to the waitress, this guy, I don't want him to have a, a, you know, an empty beer or whatever else. Cause you're not just drinking beer. You know, what else do you want? I said, okay, I'll have like a gin and tonic, whatever he goes. All night, this guy, and he peels off because because he he took out like a, a large cash bankroll. He wasn't he was kind of a little older than I was, but he was still in his twenties. But he had okay. a ton of money. He just peeled off like a twenty, which in those days, again, we're talking nineteen seventy eight. That was yeah. a fair amount of money. He gave her twenty bucks. He goes, hey, "There's more where that came from, you know. Just keep it coming, keep it coming." So, like five minutes later, I'm sitting here with this guy. I have a ice cold Heineken beer. I got a gin and tonic. I'm, you know, shooting the breeze with this guy who, you know, of course loves me and I'm having a yeah. hell of a good time. And he says, just you wait, just you wait. When the, when the, when the curtain opens, you're going to be in the front row. And gradually all the seats around us filled up because they had to, you know, they, they, you know, yeah. they're getting closer to the show and you know, there's that anticipation and all that. And finally the lights, the lights go down and the curtain, the curtain comes up. And if I'm sitting in a chair you know, like looking straight ahead, as you mentioned, sure. the stage is literally, I could put my elbow on the stage oh, and right man. next to me, I could re- I could reach up and the piano player, Roy Bitten, I could literally reach up and while he, before he got there, I could just start twinkling the keys on the piano. That's how close the piano is. Man. And, and I'm literally, and then literally when, you know, then like there's, you know, there, it's dark for a while and then the band comes out from right behind me, like the, you know, they had a stairway obviously to a second floor, but, but Springsteen and all of the band members, which were the traditionally East street band guys all walk on the stage. And, you know, at this place, at this point, the place, as you could well imagine, I mean, there's only 500 people plus, but it's a club. So the place the, is yeah. bedlam. I mean, it's absolute bedlam. And he's not even really saying anything, you know, the place is standing and people and everyone. And for me, it was like, wow, I'm like really here. This is amazing. And again, it was broadcast on, it's a famous bootleg. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. sold this bootleg and again, you know, it wound up on his live album and all, but, but this concert was broadcast all over LA. So, so they had, and it was, it was actually an excellent quality broadcast, which I eventually got, but in any case, you know, so all the radio people up above, you could see them like the guy, Ace, Ace Young, I gave him the peace sign, you know, when I was sitting there and he was laughing and waving to me, it was just, it was just a great, great moment, you know, and by the way, right behind me, 
where he stayed for the whole concert. And he was, I mean, I don't, he wasn't like 15 feet behind me. Like the wall of the back of the club is literally right behind me is yeah. Jackson Brown. Wow. So, so, you know, and, and I think, I, I don't know whether I read this or remember it, but I think I also saw Rod Stewart like nearby, you know, it was that kind of, and they were, they didn't even have seats. They were like standing, you know, yeah. that's how hard it was to get into this. So anyway, that, you know, there's all this bedlam and finally like, you know, Bruce steps up to the microphone and he does start out by saying, um, Hey, I'm really sorry about what happened on online yesterday. And, and you know, it's my fault. And, and I didn't mean to play, but he finally said, you know, I don't play any private parties anymore except my own. And then he goes, bootleggers, roll your tapes. And he starts off with, uh, Buddy Holly made it famous. He starts off with Rave On, that song, which is, you know, like wow. I love Buddy Holly. And, oh, and, sure. And it just, you know, and again, everybody, you know, if they were yelling and screaming before, now the whole place is literally standing and almost, it's almost like a vibration. Like people are literally almost bouncing up and down. You know, it's, it's that type of an energy and, uh, and, and we're, and I'm literally like Clarence Clemens is 12 feet away from like right in front of me. And again, not like in a, you know, where I'm looking up, he's literally, I'm like eye level with Clarence Clemens. And then Bruce is, he's probably about, I'd say 20, cause he's in the middle of the stage. So he's probably like 25 feet away from, me. and, um, and the, the rest of the band, like little Steve is way, cause it's a small stage. So he's in the back. And the other keyboard guy, uh, the organ players across and bass player. And then, of course, um, uh, Max Weinberg is, um, is you know, he's kind of up above everything. And it was a, but it was a very small stage. And it wasn't as I saw later on, it wasn't their whole their normal configuration. But uh, it was because it was right on top of you. But, you know, you couldn't I mean, I can't I've never I've never been that close to even, you know, even at a at a like a small, like a mid-range band. I never sent that close to them. Yeah. And of course, you know, the sound was amazing. Everything was amazing. So I did, I did, uh, I went back and I got the set list and, uh, and probably I should walk you through, you know, please let's go through it. Yes. Yeah. So, so the first song is Rave On and which he, which he normally didn't start off. He usually started off that tour. The next song was Badlands. Okay. And then after after that, Spirit of the Night, which he did, like that was like he he sort of got the audience where that he would have them sing along with him on Spirit of the Night. And and by the way, if you like at this point again, I've never seen him. And I'm really excited to see him. And the songs, the songs are sounding great. You know, I really am enjoying the music and all. Right. But still, it's like, yeah, this is a cool rock and roll show. And then he did Darkness on the Edge of Town, which was, you know, excellent. And he's sure. also, the pacing is really good because, because, um, because, you know, he's first, he's going high energy and then he'll slow down. The next song after this is Candy's Room, which is from mm-hmm. Darkness on the Edge of Town. That's high energy. And then I have to say, like this song had heard a lot before and I knew this song and I, I, you probably know much better which album it's from. I know it's from one of his first two albums and I know it's a concert sort of standard that he does, but all of a sudden he steps up to the microphone and he says, princess card. She sends me. Well, everybody in the audience knew that that was the song for you. I I didn't know that. And so he launches into for you and it's, and the version it's so much different. It's so much better than this, even though the, you know, it's a great song. Even the studio version is a great song. But that song live, all of a sudden, I almost, everyone is standing and I just sat down. I said, well, I want to really, this is a great song. Yeah. And the way, you know, the keyboard fills and everything. And it was, it, it was just an amazing song. And I said, wow, this guy, you know, the way I would always judge a concert, it would be any band that I would see, I would think to myself, 
Now, would it be worth it just to see this one song? Was it worth all the effort? How many times did that happen yes. during this concert? And that was that was the first time that that happened during that concert. And I basically, I just kind of like, I like then I got lost. And you know, say, have you ever, you know, when did you get lost in this music? And that was that was the time. And I really, at that point, I was like sitting down. I just wanted to take it all in, you know, and and the guy in front of me is, you know, the guy I gave the ticket to is completely, he's like euphoric. You know, it's just it's just amazing. But after that, then he goes into um, Point Blank, which was sort of a, a slow. I don't even know if he had released that song at point or if he ever has released. That's kind of a long ballad. Then he did uh, The Promised Land. And that was good. You know, that was a up, up tempo, really good song. And then he started. Then again, there's like a pause. And all of a sudden, Roy Bitten starts playing a piano, which is obviously I didn't. I think in the review in the LA Times, I began to realize it was a piano intro to prove it all night. Mm-hmm. And and it was one of those, and if you've ever heard, I don't know if you've heard this live version, especially from the Roxy, it's on YouTube, several okay. different, that version is on, it's not, it's not officially, it's not officially on any album, I don't think, but it is on bootlegs and it is on YouTube. And it's, it's an extraordinary version of a song that even the studio version is fabulous, but it, it's an 11 minute version of the song with a piano intro. And then a, and then Bruce does a guitar solo that leads into the song. And then there's a saxophone like outro with Clarence mm-hmm. and all. And it just, it, and it, 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 again, that was another song where I'm just sitting there going, this is incredible. This is a really incredible song. The way he, you know, the way this guy yeah. plays it live, it's just fabulous. And then, and then he, um, then he did racing in the street, which I don't think he plays very much because the people really reacted. And then there's a piano piano intro um, where he uh, I looked this up because I remember I remember it during the show that it was really meaningful. And you you talk about the song, um, you know, you ask a question about it, but then all of a sudden he stopped and I, I had to go back and listen to it, write it down. And he and he says, um, I was riding through the Arizona desert. We bought this nine hundred dollar sixty five Galaxy and we were driving around for a few days down towards Reno. And we found this one spot and this Indian. He built a house. It's pretty well known. He built this house that he scavenged from the desert. He built this big sculpture out of it on the side of the highway. And we took off down this dirt road towards this house right at the beginning. He had the sign and it said in blood red paint, this is the land of peace, love, justice, and no mercy. And the sign pointed down the dirt road and it said Thunder Road. Mm. And like at that point, you know, like it is like mesmerizing. And he, and he plays, you know, there's the sort of the harmonica beginning of Thunder Road. And he and he plays that song, and of course it brought down the house. That was another, you know, where one of those those moments where I'm saying, "Wow, this is this is an amazing song." And that was that was the end. He ends that, and you know, like the lights come up, and like I'm wondering, wait a minute. Although I also I think I remembered from the review that was only his first set. So when you think about it, that was wow. those songs, which you know, that's his first set of songs. He goes, "We're going to take a quick 15 minute break." And we'll be back. Well, you know, those, I mean, I've seen performers and I won't name them, but I've seen performers that that was, that's all they give you for a complete concert. Yeah. You know, that, that amount of, and and that probably, that probably took maybe like 60, 70 minutes, maybe yeah. a little longer. And, and I've seen, I've seen performers put in a lot less effort than that and try to get away with that as a complete show, you know? And so, um, but he didn't, and there was a 15 minute break and he said, you know, we'll be right back in 15 minutes. And, you know, of course, the again, during the break, the lights come up and, you know, my guy is there, our waitress is taking care of us. And 
yeah. we're just having a hell of a good time. And again, the thing was, we were we were both, you know, how it was a hot, it was a July night in a hot club. So, you know, we're firing down the beers and everything. But I have to say, like, it really, it was such a euphoria. And maybe I'm imagining this, but it didn't, the alcohol really didn't have any impact. I know that mm-hmm. sounds ridiculous, but no, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like all intoxicated or anything, even though I probably should have. Yeah, and it was just a very, it was a kind of a, a energetic feel, you know, it wasn't, and everybody in the crowd was like super up, you know, there weren't, everybody was kind of in a similar type of frame of mind. It was really, it was really kind of fast. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, then, then the band troops on for the second set. And I should probably tell you that whipped through that a little quicker, but the second set was different because it was more, it wasn't like, it was more of, I think it was a more relaxed type of stuff and not as many really notable, you know, more obscure stuff or things that, that didn't have, it just had a different feel to it. It was the first song was paradise by the sea. Then it was Mm -hmm. uh, fire. Adam raised a cane. She's the one growing up. It's hard to be a saint in the city. Um, Backstreets, which he does a whole, he did a long, this was, this was actually another song that was quite riveting and quite emotional, but then he did, he did a whole interlude, which I guess he calls it sad eyes. It's kind of like a spoken thing that he does. And then he goes mm. to the um, coda of Backstreets and that was about an 11 minute song. Mm. So, um, so then, so then he does heartbreak hotel and Rosalita and Rosalita is like the last song of, you know, the second set. And he left yeah. the stage, and of course, people are losing it. But you know, they know he's they know he's going to come back. But at this point, you're probably talking about he's probably been playing for three hours, um, including the break. I would have to say. Wow. So you know, that's a that's again, that's a that's a long show, but and and high energy. I mean, there's no there's not any moment of it where you know they're kind of mailing it in. I mean, every single song is totally high energy, and there's never. There's never a lull. There's never a moment where like, okay, get to the next song. I mean, it's just total, totally entertaining. And he's, he's awesome. And the band is. Awesome. And so then he came out and did a Independence Day, which, which again, I, I, you know, I'm sure the, you know, a super fan would know exactly when that was recorded and what album. It yeah. did then he did Born to Run. Then he did Because of the Night, which of course he actually, you know, he sort of co-wrote with Patti yeah. Smith. And uh, she she released it because he didn't know what to do with it. And then he did this old Eddie Floyd song, Raise Your Hand, which is like a, a 50s, yeah. almost like a gospel music type of song. And then normally, I think, at, and even his shows where he really, really played a long time, he, he left, at that point, he left the stage and people still wouldn't leave. So he came out again and he did Twist and Shout was his last song. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah. And then here's, I think he did this, I think he there were variations of this where like he would play early, especially early on in his career, he'd have people come out and take him off on a stretcher mm-hmm. to show that he was just totally all wiped out. Well, in this particular show after Twist and Shout, like the band is kind of left already. Yeah. And he stands up on the piano stool, which is right in front of me, and he fall he topples like right on top of myself. And the guy who I gave the ticket to, because we're like the two people, right? Sure. You know, we're looking up right at him. And yeah. he's right. He's a foot away from me. And I think the idea was he figured, well, they're going to probably catch me. At least they hope, you know. Yeah. And, and I think the idea is, hey, folks, I'm totally wiped out. Yeah, so he I'm falls done. on top of us, push him. We push him back up onto the stool. And uh, and basically, you know, he waves and everything and he leaves. And that's and that's the end of the show. 
and you know the lights come on and and people people didn't you know people didn't it was almost like well what do we do now you know sure and then finally the the people started to leave the auditorium and i even the guy that i gave the ticket to after a while he he said well i got a long ride he lived in the valley i think so he said i I gotta go so i shook his hands and we exchanged phone numbers and all that and then the funny another kind of odd interesting thing happened and that was Every, the place all of a sudden is deserted. Although, by the way, before that happened, I was walking around and Bruce Springsteen came out after about 30 minutes and he was just hanging out you know, yeah. he was with some other people. But he was just leaning up. He was just leaning up with, I think, some other musicians and maybe, you know, management people or whatever. And I just went up and, and you know, stuck out my hand. I wasn't sure what he would do. And he stuck his hand out and I said, hey, fabulous show. And he just, you know, he was he was very polite. And, you know, thank you. You know, and mm-hmm. thanks for coming. And I'm glad you could be here. And I said, Hey, it was, you know, it was awesome. It was amazing. And, you know, I didn't want to be one of those clowns who starts trying to talk to him for five minutes. Cause yeah, I don't even, sure. of course, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I don't want to ruin it. You know? So, so, yeah. so I walked away and I go back again to the front of the stage and there was another guy standing there with me who I, you know, we're just standing around and we can see on stage, there's really unlike the normal packup crew of, of roadies, there's only like two guys yeah. and there's a lot of equipment. And, and I had actually, when I was in college, I actually even did work on, you know, some of the school sponsored volunteers sure. to like do a little yeah. bit of, you know, packing out and all that kind of stuff. So I'm kind of looking at them and I'm saying they need way more people in this to get this stuff out of here. Mm-hmm. If this or this or these guys are in deep trouble. So I'm looking at the guy and I said, Hey, maybe they need some help. So we walk on the stage and, you know, again, in a lot of rock and roll settings, like, you know, if you do something like that, like people will get really uptight because they don't, if you're a total stranger, they don't want you anywhere near the equipment, yeah. you know? And, and so, uh, so we walked up to these two guys and I just said, Hey, you know, you guys, you guys need any help? And they kind of looked at each other and one of one guy, one guy said, well, you know, can you, can you help us load some of the stuff into the truck? And we're like, yeah, sure. And then the other guy goes, well, look, you know, we don't have any money. We can't pay you guys, you know? And I just, at yeah. least, and then the other guy, and we just started laughing. He said, no, we got nothing, you know, we got nothing to do. This will be cool. Sure. So, so the one guy right away, the one guy says to the other, okay, you go out to the truck and cause he was going to be the guy to show us where to put things. And I'll show him, you know, I'll show him how to load the, you know, cause basically what it was, was all of the monitors and the larger speakers. Like I right. think all of the sophisticated and certainly the instruments and all that, they were all gone, but this was all like the heavy lifting stuff and the, you know, the real heavy equipment that was still behind. And so we probably spent like 45 minutes um, packing all this stuff into the truck. You know, we got that done. Guy, sh- The guy locks up the back of the truck and he goes, hey, let's go up to the dressing room because they might have left some things up there. You know, we're just going to do a quick walkthrough. Mm-hmm. And he goes and we said, you know, well, we, we just followed him. You know, we didn't we didn't say, hey, can we come? We just said, yeah, we'll go with him. Yeah. You know, they, like and they were totally cool. You know, we walk up, we go backstage we're in like the room where, you know, the band had been. And, and it's funny because they also winked and they said, hey, maybe they left an open bar for us up there or whatever. Yeah. And, and we got up there, but there really wasn't much of anything. But I think really what they were doing was making sure nobody left a wallet or, you know. And yeah, something like that. Like yeah. yeah. And, and you know, they just didn't want to have to deal with anything like that. And, um, you know, like they said, well, look, guys, thanks a lot. I'm sure we couldn't pay you. But by that time, like we had picked up broken drumsticks and all this yeah. kind of, you know, discarded stuff and guitar picks. We had all of that kind of nonsense. Yeah. But the thing was, the funny thing was that the, uh, on the way out, the guy, you know, one of the guys said to me, he goes, look, we have to go to Phoenix 
you know, Phoenix is our next stop. Now, remember, this is midnight. Yeah. On a Friday, midnight, one o'clock, and they have to drive this truck. It was a giant. It was one of the larger U-Haul rent-a-truck. And, uh, and, and it was crammed with equipment. And they're going to have to drive this thing and get it to Phoenix, which, mm-hmm. you know, that's a seven-hour drive. Yeah. And they didn't even know where they were going. So so during it was somewhere during the process. And I just said, look, when we're done, we're ready. I'll tell you, it's really simple, you know, getting to Phoenix from, from even where we are in the city. Don't worry about it. So yeah. So they, they finally, they're getting ready to get in the truck. And I said, look, all you have to do is – on the Sunset Boulevard, oh, you, you make a left, and I know, I know you're in Dallas. So this may not mean anything to your yeah. listeners, but it is simple. You just go to you go to a Main Street La Cienega Boulevard. You make a right, and you take that all the way to the Interstate 10, and the 10, you know, goes all the way to downtown Phoenix. Yeah, and that's it. And the guy he had pulled out a map because he thought I was going to show him on the map, but I said, you don't even just stay on the, stay on La Cienega. You're going to get to the 10. Take it east. You're done. You're going to see signs right away. So then the guy says, well, hey, you know, we're going to Phoenix, but we're going to be in San Diego on Sunday. And, you know, we'd love to have, you know, to thank you guys. The other guy was there, too. He goes, thank you, guys. We'd love to have you come down and see the show in San Diego. And, and you know, they were playing like the sports arena. And I just, you know, I said, yeah. But I, I almost, because here's I said to them, well, yeah, but we'll never be able to find you guys. You know, like, you know, I don't want to. Yeah. Because I was, I don't want to be a pain in the, you know, have them right. feel obligated. He goes, no, no, no. Come on down. Just get there early. And you know what? I, I really, Jesse, I almost really think that what they were thinking was, you know, we're going to get to San Diego and we're going to be in the same situation. And here's two guys who seem Maybe like these guys will help us. Yes. Bruce. Yeah, maybe they'll help us again, you know? Mm-hmm. And the thing was, I, like, I went home that night and of course I was, you know, I told my parents all about it and I was thinking about it. And, Remember, I'm used to their car, staying in their house. And what I yeah. should have said to my dad, especially, was, look, there may even be a job in this for me. You know, I've worked with the road crew and they kind yeah. of want me to come down, but I, I didn't handle it correctly. Like, and I just, I, I blew it. It's like one of the saddest nights of my life was that Sunday. I just didn't even bring it up and I didn't go. Yeah. And I really always kind of wonder, you know, like what would have happened if I went like, would they even would they even have just blown? You know, what would have happened if and I'm I'm sure the other guy went down there. You know, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe he's like an executive in the Bruce Springsteen company today. I, you know, you know, oh, yeah. I, mean? like, I have no idea, no idea where that may have led to. But but all, all in all, you know, that was that was that was the moment that after that and people would say, well, you know, are you a fan of Springsteen? I'd say. I'd say, yeah. And I said, well, what are your favorite songs? And I'd say, I, I don't listen to any album. I listen to the live show that I went to, which was mm-hmm. true because I got a copy of it, you know, because KMET rebroadcast it like two weeks later. Yeah. And I taped the whole show on cassette. So almost right away, I had that a copy of that show and I would listen to it, you know, from start to finish, you know, and or if I was in the car, I'd listen to, you know, various songs. And, and so that was, that was like, for me, that was my unique Bruce Springsteen kind of recording that I would listen to, you know, that had a special meaning just for me. That you know? is so, awesome. So that that's is... kind of what you say. How did, yeah. yeah, that's, it's a pretty, it's, a, and you know, by the way, this isn't the first time I've ever told that story. In case I can imagine. Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, this is great. Um, gosh, uh, Unfortunately, Phil, I'm I'm running short on time. I've got to get out of here, but uh, I want to have you on again because I want to talk about your podcast, that history. Why did you decide to do that? So if it's OK to you, let's let's after 
we hang up, we'll we'll book a second time and we can talk about, you know, why you decided to do this podcast and how, you know, how this became a passion to yours. Okay. Well, that, that would be fabulous. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I just looked up at the clock and as I told you, you know, you asked me what time it is. I'll tell you how, I'll tell you how to build yeah. a grandfather clock. And I can't, I can't believe the time went that quickly, but it did. Yeah. So, well, uh, same thing for me. Cause so. I was like, uh, I was like, okay, now then let me go. And I'm like, Oh wait, we've already gone an hour. Uh, and normally I would just keep going, but I've got a hard stop cause I've got to get to no problem. an appointment. Um, so I'm going to hold uh, I'm not going to ask the Mary question. I'm going to hold off. We're going to have you a second time. So this is part awesome. one of my discussion with Phil, though you're setting a pretty high bar, Phil. Like having you back <laughs> in, uh, this will be great. Uh, but in the meantime, well, if someone wants to reach you, how can they? Well, they can they can go to my website, which is uh, some veryfamouspeople.com. They can email me there. And that's a website with stuff about me, but also about my podcast itself and some more things that I've written and some information about me. That's probably the best way to. That sounds great. All right. Uh, listeners okay. for now. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Listeners be kind be My safe. Pleasure. We will talk to you soon. Goodbye. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of links where you can reach me and give me feedback. So if you want to skip this, I understand, but I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at setlustingbruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce. You can send me 46942. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, Perfectly Podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song. My Babylon 5 podcast is last best hope conversation where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor podcast with my brother in time, Charles Gags. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast that, that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. Go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rate for all of the podcasts. It's okay if you don't listen to them. If you subscribe and rate, we'll make my day better. Thank you. And I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only Settlers. The theme for Settlers was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 